we're still on hiatus at Pod, so we're bringing you some bangers from the archive. In this episode, Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein joins us from a locked-down New York to talk the cosmos, identity and dreams deferred. We'll be back at the end of autumn with new episodes and new offers, especially for our patrons, including regular giveaways of some of our favourite non-fiction reads, backers on patreon.com to be entered into our drawers. And if you're mad keen on books, which we assume you are, please can we recommend our newest supporter, the fine folk at All Good Bookshop. When I first popped in, Tim was busy tracking down a mystery book. You know the sort of thing. Someone rings up and says, it has a purple cover. Um, It's the house of something. It's a mystery book, but uh, funny. It's by, you know... And in less time than you can say, you don't happen to know the ISBN, do you? Tim had solved the mystery, found the book, currently unavailable in the UK, ordered it from the US and had it winging its way to the customer. How's that for service? You can order by phone, email or even direct message. See allgoodbookshop.co.uk for details. And now back into our archive. Hello and welcome to this episode of Nonfic Pod with me, Byrne. And me, Cod. Our guest this week is Dr Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. She's a cosmologist and a particle physicist and an absolutely brilliant speaker. Reading her book, The Disordered Cosmos, took me right back to when I saved up, I think it was my Kellogg's tokens, to send away for a popular science book and got A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. Georgie, were you part of the Brief History of Time train when it came out, or were you a little young for that? I guess I must have been too young. I remember sending off serial um, tokens for the that little professor man from Wheatos. Note, other serials are available. But nobody ever sent me a <laughs> bloody physics book. Damn it. How old were you reading A Brief History of Time? I, I must find this out. I must have been in my almost teens, probably about 12, 13. And a lot of it I didn't entirely get, but it was written in such an accessible way. But yeah, Dr. Prescott Weinstein's book just took me back to that desire to understand something that is so out of the realms of everyday experience. Uh, So she talks in the book about things that happened in the first few billionths of a second of the universe forming. And things that are 7,000 light years away. And these are scales that I just have nothing. You know, you can't do that in areas the size of Wales or length of a London bus, really. You have to go to the pure mathematics to grok this stuff. So her excitement is, is really infectious. It's a great interview. Excellent. What did you think listening to Chanda? I loved listening to you guys chat. I felt a bit out of my depth on some of the physics stuff, but in a way that was pleasurable. I also love her the sound of her voice. She's got <laughs> her voice is amazing. It's so good. I was like, ooh, tell me more. Yeah, yes. Tell me more about neutron stars and why you adore them. Stay tuned for this interview because it has not just got physics, it's got sociology, it's got history, and it's got awe, wonder and an awful lot of excitement from a fantastic speaker. Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein is a theoretical cosmologist and a campaigner for inclusion in physics. She's an assistant professor at the University of New Hampshire, 
and is working on the NASA Strobe X mission. Dr. Prescott-Weinstein recently received the 2021 Edward A. Boucher Award from the American Physical Society in recognition for contributions to theoretical cosmology and particle physics, as well as for her campaigning work. The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time and Dreams Deferred is available now. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Prescott-Weinstein. Thank you for having me. So if I can begin at the very beginning, there is a stunning diagram near the start of the disordered cosmos in which you lay out the timescales in which the universe began. The inflationary stage, that initial faster than the speed of light period, lasted tiny fractions of a second. But from there, we climb up this log scale and matter doesn't arrive for, I think I'm right in saying, 400,000 years. How does it feel to have to encompass timescales so many orders of magnitude apart? Yeah, I would definitely say being a cosmologist is I'm very nonlinear. And something I like to remind my students, I actually taught a cosmology seminar for PhD students last semester, is that this is something that you get intuition for by working with it. So nobody's born with intuition for it. It's something that you work for. And yeah, these these questions about timelines. So there's really there's a lot that happens in the very first in the first three minutes. And in fact, there's a very famous Steve Weinberg book called The First Three Minutes. Um, so Steve Weinberg is a is a particle theorist who played a, a really important role in establishing a lot of our understanding of, of the standard model of particle physics. The inflationary era happens at about 10 to the minus 41-ish seconds. That's a, it's a little bit. So, you know, if you think about like a, a decimal point with like a lot of zeros afterwards, right? Um, by the end of the first three minutes, we basically have the seeds of matter. So we have a lot of particles floating around. And what we have is a kind of like stew of quarks that is starting to condense into into other things. And so you have this kind of like plasma of particles and photons and quarks and all of these things until about somewhere between 300,000 and 400,000 years. And then at that point, the plasma actually yields and the universe becomes transparent to photons. So photons can start flying freely through space-time at that point. And that point is something that maybe people have heard of if they if they read my column in New Scientist or something like that, if they're some kind of nerds. It's known as the cosmic microwave background radiation. So we actually can still see those photons. They they course their their wavelength uh, corresponds to a temperature of about 2.73 degrees Kelvin. So they're very cold. So what's interesting about that is that I just told you a story that ranges from 10 to the minus 41 seconds to three minutes to 400,000 years. And then I said, we can still see the photons. And now we're at like the 14 billion year point, right? Um, you know, nobody's born knowing that story. <laughs> <laughs> it is. You mentioned the word intuition. It is outside of intuition, isn't it? And requires so much in terms of observation and painstaking theory. One of the things that really blew my mind about that, the graph that you present, is the fact that we're still not quite sure how things went from being really chilly after this massive expansion to mm. warming back up again. How do you feel knowing that there are these tantalising mysteries still? It's why I do my job, right? Um, if if we if we figure it all out, then there's nothing left for me to do. So actually, when I give I give a lot of presentations about my research because that's actually that's part of my my job is to go around and and give talks to other physicists about what I'm up to. And 
when I know there are going to be a lot of students in the audience, I spend a decent amount of time like introducing, um, you know, the, the problems that I, I work on. And one of the things I really like to emphasize these days is that science is about what we don't know. It's not about what we know. And so actually being stuck on a problem, the field being stuck on a problem, not being able to sort something out is really good news for me because it means I get paid to think about the problem. So I, I don't see that as a, as a problem at all. The, the thing that you're specifically referring to is an era right after the inflationary period called preheating and e eventually reheating. And I'll tell you that reheating stresses me out for, <laughs> for a different reason, which is there's always this question of being able to test our theories being, and therefore being able to gather data. And so I mentioned the cosmic microwave background radiation. It is hard but not impossible to gather information about the time period before the universe became transparent to those photons. And so one of the things that I worry about a lot is will we ever be able to see evidence of what happened during that reheating time period during the first minute or so? Yeah, so I, I worry about that. I think as on the theoretical side doing math, we're fine. <laughs> The question is always, how will we test our ideas and how will we find evidence that points us in the direction of good ideas? Mm, where would it leave its footprints? Yes. Something that's that far back. Yeah. And speaking of scales, you exhort your readers to look at the pillars of creation in the Eagle Nebula, which is one of the most stunning pictures that I've ever seen. This star nursery is, you tell us in the book, 7,000 light years away and six light years across. Again, how do you relate to physical structures so large? And is this where having a real love of mathematics comes in? I definitely think that math helps, right? I, I, I really, I've started to realize really over the last couple of months that I think understanding orders of magnitude, so powers of 10, is actually a social justice issue because we have people in our governments who are spending these large sums of money we have rich people who may or may not be paying their taxes or maybe hiding large sums of money in places where they're not required to pay taxes. On some level, the entire system is relying on everyday voters not necessarily having a good intuition for what the difference is, for example, between a billion pounds and a million pounds is. And that it's not just like, oh, there are three extra zeros there, but that this is actually like a million is a small percentage of a billion. <laughs> a million pounds, a million dollars, whatever is like a lot of money, right? But it's actually not a lot compared to what the budgets of our governments are. So I just want to draw that connection that having an intuition for these numbers is not simply about understanding the cosmos or having an intuition for the cosmos, but it's actually about our ability to democratically participate in the society that governs our lives. I do think that something like the pillars of creation can motivate us to get good with those numbers. And that if that's your motivation, that's maybe more fun motivation than like worrying about like, what is the prime minister doing? And how much is the home office spending on deportations of Windrush children? One way that I always situate myself is when I look at an image like the pillars of creation, which is like, you know, a small piece of, a, of a, a larger structure, I remind myself that every little dot that I can see resolved in the picture, every little bright spot is a star. And our sun is pretty typical. So first approximation, it's like the size of our sun. 
And I have some intuition for how much bigger the sun is than the earth. And so then I think there might be like a little tiny, tiny earth that's orbiting that star that I can't see. And that helps me understand what is the scale of the picture that I'm looking at. So again, not something that I'm born with, but I know enough information that I can look at it and situate my own sense of scale in context. I think that that familiarity with the idea of orders of magnitude being a social justice issue doesn't come up enough in mathematics education. I remember when I was much younger, in the early days of the internet, there was a website that I think was called Powers of Ten. The video. <laughs> which show, yes, started with like just a person yeah. on a on a mat and went up in orders of 10 and down in orders of 10. And things like that that bring scale home are just incredibly powerful. Um, you have a chapter called I Heart Quarks, and you clearly do. Neutron stars, you stan. What is it you get excited about with neutron stars? I, mean, I actually think they're connected, and I'm realizing that probably I didn't do a good enough job of drawing that connection in the book, but I'll just say that I'm saving that for the next one, and it was all planned out. Um, oh, you tease. And, and, you know, neutron stars, I always have this like sort of running argument with my friend Joey Nielsen, who is a black hole expert about whether neutron stars are cooler or black holes are cooler. And I'm definitely, I'm on team neutron star. <laughs> because like black holes are just like strange space-time things, but neutron stars are like these really weird, extremely compact, like if you think about just taking you know, the mass of the sun and squeezing it into an area that's smaller than like um, Los Angeles or London. Um, so it's like extremely dense. It's like the densest stuff in the universe. And there are all kinds of weird like um, quark superfluids and plasma. And it's just like, it's a, it's a strange object. And then they also have these really strong magnetic fields. You know, one of the, the, the very first way that neutron stars were, were, were truly observed were because of these like powerfully rotating, like they're like lighthouses. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you can tell from my enthusiasm. I really like them. I think it's okay for other people like Joey to be wrong about that because I'm, Somebody has to think about black holes. (laughs) (laughs) I love how in the book, that idea of something that is both freaky and observable is just such a great thing to glom onto for physics. Uses of physics are manifold from medicine to cosmology to sending us to space. But I'm surprised uh, when I ran across a, a mention of astronomy being used in survey work. And the name Benjamin Banneker, who maybe that I'm British, but I suspect that it's not. I hadn't come across his name before. Can you tell our listeners more? I mean, you talk about him in the book, but can you tell us a little more about his work and why he's important? Yeah, so Benjamin Banneker was an African-American astronomer. He was born free. He was a contemporary of Thomas Jefferson in the 18th century. And Banneker is notable in a couple of different ways. I think one is that even though his name is a name that we know, and he's unusual for that as 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 a, a black person who was doing science in a way that is acknowledged by larger society as this is official science, and in particular, this is official astronomy. 
there's a lot that we don't know about him because a lot of his papers were lost. They were burned. And so he remains this kind of like enigmatic figure where there are also rumors about what role exactly did he play in the building of Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States, um, that he actually participated in the survey work. And so he was using his mathematical abilities, not just to do astronomy, but to also participate in what we would probably call now civil engineering, although I'm super not an expert on the differences between all of the engineering thingies. Um, <laughs> so the other reason that Banneker is notable is because he had an exchange with Thomas Jefferson about um, the humanity of Black people. To use today's language, he called Jefferson out for being a white supremacist racist and said, we are just as human and competent as people like you. And that's the part of Banneker that I think is probably like best known and, and best preserved in a way, because he was as one of far too few Black people during that time who were not enslaved and who was educated. He was in a position to do that battle with Jefferson on paper when um, so many of our ancestors weren't allowed to read. So Banneker is really remembered as the first Black American astronomer. And I think for me, he's a little bit complicated because I know that he probably wasn't the only one. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the name that we know. And so I don't mean he's like, I have a problem with him, but it, it, it it's bittersweet that that's the name that we know when I know there must have been others. It's like the preheating, reheating. You know, you know there's something yeah. there, but the the evidence is, is beyond, uh, beyond our sight now. Um, only in this case, that's the fault of people, not just a facet of the of, of physics right the enslavement of people wasn't just an act of economic violence and human violence enslaved people weren't just stripped of labor and liberty you argue about the expertise and the wisdom that was exploited in a time when we are looking at okay vaccination rather than inoculation would you like to spend a moment setting the record straight about to whom we owe our understanding of inoculation right. so at least for those of us who are are based in north america right and actually i should say since i'm at the university of new hampshire this is like local um new england information there was an enslaved man named onesimus who introduced smallpox inoculations to the colonizers um, who had come to the, the Massachusetts colony. I would say he probably saved a lot of lives by introducing inoc inoculation. And, it, and it's unlikely that he had come to the idea himself. He was kidnapped in Africa. And so this was knowledge that he brought with him through the Middle Passage. A lot of knowledge came a, a, across the Atlantic through the Middle Passage to the Americas, including the Caribbean. And, and actually, you know, I, I don't think I touch on this in the book, but one of the misunderstandings that people often have, people of all identities, is that actually the majority of enslaved and kidnapped people went to Latin America and not to the United States. And so the United States often kind of figures as a central geography in these conversations, but actually... I'm the majority of people, and this is one of the reasons that I, I, I'm careful to say the Americas. Um, the slave trade didn't have that kind of border in some sense. Onesimus is important to me because he belonged to the Mather family, um, and I am a graduate of Mather House at Harvard University. I think I make this as a side comment in the book, but um, I 
I'm not fond of going to Harvard reunions, but I would go back for renaming of Mather House to Onesimus House. And I think it would be an important recognition of his scientific contributions and also Harvard's own legacy and relationship with slavery. In The Disordered Cosmos, you are passionate about your defence of Mauna Kea. Despite observations that the proposed 30-metre telescope can make possible, you're opposed to its development, even turning down employment that would have meant crossing a picket line. It made me think what our reaction would be if, if an international consortium decided to build a radio telescope at Stonehenge. Not that the Wiltshire climate is anywhere near appropriate for astronomy. <laughs> Who's involved in the struggle to prevent the building of this 30-metre telescope? And what's the outcome that you would like to I see? I love that comparison to Stonehenge. As someone who has been to Stonehenge, although it was when I was a kid at school in London, and I was like, okay, it's some giant stones, right? So on some level, I have an intuition for being so ignorant that you don't have an appreciation for the thing that you were looking at. And of course, now that I'm older, it's, I think Stonehenge is very impressive and interesting and all of kind of like the mysteries around it. And, and so I actually think, you know, it's an interesting parallel to think about in, in the case of like Mauna Kea, because part of the argument is this is such an important site to astronomers. And I get it. I haven't been up Mauna Kea, but I've been up um, Haleakala, which is on Maui and is another um, contested telescope site in, in Hawaii. And the seeing is incredible. When I say seeing, um, you're above layers of atmosphere that can be disruptive to your astronomical images. I get why it is scientifically compelling, completely understand why it is scientifically compelling. Nonetheless, there are other considerations besides what's scientifically compelling Maybe part of the comment that I want to make there is that in some sense, astronomers are saying, this is scientifically compelling for me, and I am therefore emotionally invested in it. And there's this inability to understand that other people could have a different emotional investment in the same place for reasons that actually run deeper than what we find scientifically compelling and that go beyond our sense of the sublime, which I think is often where scientists are speaking from is our sense of the sublime. But when you're dealing with colonialism and its after effects, you're also dealing with injustice and pain and psychosocial heartbreak, right? And I guess I should say that like my position on this is if Native Hawaiians decided through whatever process makes sense to them as an indigenous community, that this is exactly what they wanted to do. I'm not opposed to building the telescope under those conditions. I'm opposed to astronomers becoming a force of divisiveness where indigenous people are set against each other because it is in our interest for them to be on one side or the other. How was that, Georgie? Did you enjoy that? Yes, I did. I loved it. The history. I find the history so fascinating. And also, I'd never really thought of the intersection between science and politics. I feel like we should have history of science as kind of a, a running along subject at school because I feel completely clueless mm. about it. And I want to know more. Yeah, I mean, we are taught I think in school that science 
And certainly the idea of testing your ideas in the face of data is a really good way of getting over our biases. It's the only way of checking you know, whether or not this is true or whether we just want it to be true. But who gets access to the places where this stuff is done? Who gets to publish in journals? Whose names are included on papers? You know, these are all things that are prone to the same political influences, the same social biases as everything else. So there are so many hidden figures in the history of science. And the history of science, the way that scientific institutions suffer from blind spots and biases, is something we should be aware of. That said, as Dr Prescott-Weinstein says, knowing stuff by measuring it is still a phenomenal human endeavour. And that part of science, the way that she talks about retaining her awe and her wonder in the face of what can be an entirely, you know, an incredibly aggressive or exclusionary area to work, I found very inspiring. Mm, Same here. And are people listening to this bit now, are they going to be the lucky people who get to hear shit I wish I'd known, Vern? Well, that depends on if they are our Patreon backers at Silver Nib and above, because she does talk a lot about the ways in which she works collaboratively, both in science and in writing, and the ways in which she manages to find her her narrative voice. So I really think that if you are a backer, you're going to love this. If you're not a backer, it's not too late. Search for Nonfic Pod on Patreon. Yeah, don't miss it. I was enthralled, enthralled by her approach and kind of delving into the the way she even handled her acknowledgement section with you. That was in the book. He talked about uh, some of the fatigue that comes with being a scientist and having to perform role model or trailblazer, uh, and also have these roles of activist and survivor. How do you find the support to keep you going? And how do you keep your love of physics alive in the face of all of that extra labor? It's a fight, right? It's a fight. And I'm, it's particularly a, a fight that sometimes I'm motivated because students are asking me that exact question that you just asked me, and I need to have answers for them. Even on the days when I'm actually like feeling like I'm losing the battle, I still need to be able to say to them, no, we can do this because I can't pass on to them whatever crap I'm dealing with that day, right? I have an incredibly supportive spouse, and I will say to anyone thinking about a life in science and in academia in general, that that's probably, if you're going to be in a relationship or relationships, that the people you are having those possibly plural relationships with need to be people who absolutely believe in you and your mission and what you want to do. People who want you to compromise are probably not going to mix super well with academia. And I I actually think that that's like an unsung piece of advice that's particularly true for those of us who are not het cis men. I also have communities, and I say communities, plural, of scientists of different dimensions who um, support me, who cheer me on. I have a, a group text with Black scientists that we also have hangouts a couple times a month. I have a group of more political physicists and astronomers. Actually, the, the four of us had a piece published in Scientific American on, on the day we happened to be recording this. 
about changing the name of what is called in the book JWST, which is a, a next generation Hubble telescope that's named after a man who was complicit in homophobic um, government policy in, in the 50s. And we are campaigning for the name to be removed from this telescope before launch and for the telescope to be named the Harriet Tubman Space Telescope instead. So I have people I can do those things with. I also have Particles for Justice, which we co-organized the strike for Black Lives along with Shutdown STEM last summer. And so having that array of people who are collaborators and um, people who will cheer you on my, I have a fellow queer theoretical physicist, Brian Shuvi, Groovy Shuvi, as his students sometimes call him. <laughs> and he's someone I talk to like almost every day. And he's someone I feel very comfortable, like in the moments when I feel stupid, I go to him and he's like, here's why this is actually like a good question. Or let me just answer it for you. He also read the book carefully and gave me feedback on it. Right. So you just have to have a team of people that you trust. And to be clear, like the, that team is multiracial. They're not all black. Um, they're not all het. They're not all cis. Um, but some of them are het cis, white and male, right? Yeah, I was going to ask about the um, the acknowledgement section because it is so broad, uh, and the different sections. I'd refer to them as the different sections in the Dr. Prescott Weinstone backing group <laughs> because it is this really broad church of people with whom you are allied. I think that's something that people miss about both, well, definitely about science and sometimes about activism, is the degree of collectivism involved. We tend to think of the great man in science moments, the the Watsons and Cricks, or even the Rosa Parkses. And there are many, many people who are involved in any form of progress. How early did you grok that in your development as a scientist, that this wasn't something that you would be doing entirely yeah, solo? I think I was, I was primed for it by my my mother, Margaret Prescott, and my grandmother, Selma James, who are both women's rights campaigners, and, and Selma is actually based in London, um, which is how how I ended up spending a lot of time there as, as a kid. I heard, like, I learned the word autonomy by the time I was, like, seven. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I think, like, my first memory of that word is from around that time period. And certainly by the time I was 10... I'm not sure I could have given like a full dictionary definition, but I had a sense of like autonomy within community and how autonomy is important, but it is, and solidarity is important. And so I would say solidarity, I can't remember a time in my life when I didn't know that word because my dad is a labor organizer and, 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 and in his retirement, he's actually for the last several years been a, a full-time like labor party organizer in, in, in the UK. And, and so solidarity is like very much in my vocabulary. And so I, I think I'm primed to go into situations expecting to work with others, expecting that things are not done alone because that was what I saw growing up that there was no, I mean, like, look, Selma James is a name. Like I think is is like I'm among women's rights campaigners, like very well known as the founder of the wages for housework campaign. And, um, you know, she's been featured in the guardian many times, et cetera. But it is the case that if you talk to Selma about her work, that she will say that I'm one of many and so I think that that is just my, it's my political training to go into 
um, situations like that and, and see it as a group effort. And that said, you know, I, I do think that there is some tension between my training and a different principle that I've come to through Black feminist academic work, which is that citation is care. So recognizing the individual contributions of people is also important. And so again, I think, you know, it's that autonomy plus solidarity, they go hand in hand, I, I, I would say. And unfortunately, academia really doesn't reward that perspective at all. Academia is always looking for the singular hero. And, you know, Brian Keating wrote this book, Losing the Nobel Prize, that um, argues that this incident that actually was about using the cosmic microwave background radiation to try and find information about the inflationary era. So going back to that science problem that, 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 wor- that I worry about. Um, at one point, there was a claim that they had found evidence of it. And it turned out this claim was like complete garbage. And Brian wrote this whole book about like where he thought things had gone wrong. And he said the Nobel Prize, because only three people can win it, and because it's such a prestigious thing, was actually driving people to make mistakes. Yeah, we have. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lapsed academic here. I, I left the academy after having my kid because I just I couldn't face it. But over here, we have something called the REF, the Research Excellence Framework, where researchers have to submit, you know, these are how many papers I've published. These are how many dollars, you know, pounds of grant money that I've got. These are how many postdocs I've been able to supervise. And it really rewards that kind of presenteeist, 80 hours a week is normal. I'm taking credit for all the the junior people's work. You know, it it does not support collectivism or solidarity at all. And the pandemic has just made that so fucking manifest. Um, And yeah, I I had no idea that your grandmother was the wages for housework. I just, oh, the the person who is most recognisably associated with that. Because yeah, the pandemic has thrown so many of these arguments back onto the front burner again sorry getting no I mean like I actually like the comment that I will make about that is that like I'm always pleased when I see that like people are finally coming around to wages for housework particularly like my mom along with Wilmette Brown was co-founder of black women for wages for housework so this is really like I grew up in this right and and this is certainly I mean now the chapter on wages for scientific work in the book probably makes more sense to you right and and I think one of the frustrations that I have about this conversation during the pandemic in particular is that the focus has been so much on what is the difficulty of being a professional woman with children as if like poor women haven't been struggling with like, how do I work three jobs um, and raise a kid? And then people are like, well, what if you had just gone to university instead? And it's like, you know, I shouldn't have to go to university or like whatever, whatever that you shouldn't have to be intellectually accomplished in a certain way to be able to live with dignity. And um, I still feel that that's the piece that's missing because now we have all of these professional women coming out and saying, well, like, it's really not fair to me. And it's like, poor women have been trying to tell you for decades that this was not fair. And also that something like this was coming and it was going to hit you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, coming back to the question of solidarity, Professional women repeatedly made the choice to throw their solidarity behind a a capitalist framing of human needs rather than rethinking maybe what we're trying to professionalize and integrate into is a broken system that we should not be holding up. 
And I think that there are lots of lessons there for those of us in academia. And then I think, you know, the sciences in particular, where there actually is, compared to other areas of academia, a lot of money being thrown around. Lean in, fuck off. Uh Yeah, right. Lean in, fuck off. That would be like a great podcast. (laughs) Oh my God, I'd be up to it. Just finished a book called How to Build a Human. And one of the first things they write is why this is not a mummy book. It's like just parenting. Men produce prolactin when they become parents. The stuff that we thought just made women lactate. Their brains right. also produce prolactin, the neuroscience of what happens in the brains of any carer, whether they give birth or become carers through adoption or being married to a carer. The changes are almost identical apart from sometimes if there has been birth trauma, there are things that exclusively pertain to people who have gone through the act of childbirth, but becoming a carer alters the brain of everyone. Oh my God, we have things over here. I don't know, it's like in the States, but we have mommy and baby groups and mothering magazine. No, we've changed. You know, if someone goes around going, oh yes, he's a businessman. People go, <coughs> business person. And I argue about the fact that to mother, to father and to parent have such different meanings in language. You know, uh, uh. anyway, sorry, that's a whole by the by. But yes, uh, uh, lean in, fuck off. We need to we need to get this. (laughs) Any badges at the very least. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So finally, just before you put fingers to keyboard, and I know a lot of the disordered cosmos is stuff that's been worked in various different ways over time. But if you could travel back in time, sorry, hate saying that to a physicist, but if you could travel back in time to early Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, what would you wish she had known before she first put either fingers to keyboard or signed that publishing contract? Well, I only signed the publishing contract like two years ago, so I feel like we're not doing enough time travel here. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, where I thought you were going with this is like when I was first getting started, and I would say like, you know, this is, I wrote this book for that 17-year-old who was going off to to university. I'm, you know, my my editor, Katie O'Donnell, who is like amazing, (laughs) at some point, I, we had, we went out and we had lunch. And the poor thing had to sit with me for like two hours while I was like being incredibly like, and here's what's going to go wrong. And here's what's going to go wrong is I was like, also, I wrote this like really weird Twitter thread about neutrinos the other day. And that was really fun, but it was really weird. And she was like, you know, you could just be weird. (laughs) I think I'm glad she gave me that piece of advice. I think that that's a piece of advice I would give myself is be weird. And, and, you know, so actually like I open, what is it? Chapter two about dark matter. dark matter isn't dark with like a discussion about neutrinos the discussion about neutrinos is like mostly there because I wanted to talk about neutrinos like I could have totally done the chapter on dark matter without mentioning neutrinos at all because we now know that neutrinos are not the dark matter although for a long time people thought they were but mostly I was just like I want to just say some stuff about neutrinos (laughs) so I think just give yourself permission to do what makes you have fun while you're doing it because it's hard. So try and have fun. That is glorious advice. I'm so, so glad you you spent your time with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for, for having me on. If people want to find your uh, crazy threads on neutrinos, um, where can they find you on Twitter? 
Yeah. So I guess instead of spelling it out for people, I'll just tell people to search for my name, Chanda Prescott Weinstein and Twitter. And I promise actually, if you just Google my name, that Twitter's that the Twitter is going to come up. Um, and for people who are wondering what my handle IBG Yongi means, it's a reference to a K-pop star. <laughs> I was wondering. Um, and yeah, uh, is there anywhere else that people should be looking for you online? Yeah, people can find me on Bookstagram at chanda.prescott.weinstein. And I I just have to shout out to my best friend, Sharifa Williams, who also drew many of the figures for the book. Um, she's the managing editor of Book Riot, and she has been teaching me how to use Bookstagram. So <laughs> anything I successfully do there, I mostly learn from Sharifa. Thank you. <laughs> I love how you acknowledge, you know, citation is caring. I, I love this. Well, with much solidarity and awe and wonder, thank you so much, Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, for spending time with us on Nonfic Pod. Thank you. beautiful nerd i am currently dipping into the 99% invisible city uh which is kurt colstead and roman mars uh roman mars the god of silky podcasting voices uh and i'm loving it it's definitely one of those things that you can't like a like a variety box of chocolates you just sort of open it and go what do i want to know about now mm, do i fancy manhole covers today or am i going to do the different colored spray paint markings that i see on pavements what is it that i'm gonna indulge my curiosity in today so i'm highly recommending that plus it's beautifully made and gorgeously illustrated what about you georgie what's on your what's on your bedside table or beside your toilet or wherever you do your most i am reading i know why the cage bird sings by maya angelou and i have never read any maya angelou up until this year which seems absurd to me now that i am reading her because there's something about her writing style. So it's so vivid. It's the first in a series of autobiographies and it's describing her childhood in, in the deep South of America. And I just, I feel like I'm there. I can smell everything. I can see everything. And it does that thing, which I think fantastic nonfiction books do, which is transports you. And I do feel like I am there. The story just takes you there. And also on a line by line level, feeling, seeing as we were talking about nerdiness, on a line by line level, I'm reading it and I'm like, oh my goodness, how did she achieve that feeling within me? I've got about a third left and I actually don't want it to stop. So I'm very glad there are more books out there. That's a good exercise for our listeners. Um, let us know on the tweets. We are nonfic pod, uh, three letters, three letters, three letters, all smushed together. No punctuation. Uh, let us know how you experiment with your writing or what kind of writing you particularly enjoy. If you really want to help us, then what are some of the things that people can do? You could rate us. That would be super duper duper helpful um, on whatever podcatching uh, device implement website you are using. Review us. Just, just be like, best ever, full stop. Undying love, affection, five star reviews, 
and maybe a tweet. But yeah, the more people like you who end up listening to us, people who love nonfiction and want to know how it's written, or just want to know what is going to be their next brilliant read, do us a favour and do them a favour and share this podcast with them. That lets us keep bringing you the best writers and the most exciting new books. Oh, yes, a tweet. That would be good. And talking of bringing you the most exciting new books, for anyone who has missed it so far, we do have our own online bookshop on bookshop.org.uk. Um, again, nonficpod, N-O-N-F-I-C-P-O-D. And you can buy the books from all of our authors in the series here. And when you do, you will be making a contribution to the independent bookselling industry. And what's not to like about that? You'll also be helping the podcast. So everyone's a winner, baby. Absolutely. I promise to not sing as long as you guys come and have a look in our storefront. This episode of Nonfic Pod was brought to you by Beatrice Bazell, Emma Byrne, Georgie Codd, Mike Wire, and our special guest, Dr. Chanda Prescott Weinstein. Our Patreon supporters are. Claire and Alexander, David Corney, Alessandra Coyne, which is the best name on the list. Ciao, ciao. Nicola Myrams, Mike Wire. Yeah. So if you would like to hear Card or myself slightly mangle your name in the credits, don't forget to subscribe on Patreon. This not just the Elgin marbles. We actually make fucking Stonehenge. I have to say, you know, the part of me that partly grew up in Kilburn is like that is so on brand. You can really help us by rating, reviewing, and sharing Nonfic Pod. Every little helps to build our audience, and that means we get to share fantastic non-fiction with more people just like you. And it helps us to keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads. Mm-hmm.